Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to The Wolf's Den. My name is Mark Atobri, and in this episode, we're gonna be deconstructing the world of health, fitness, and performance, and exploring all things personal training. My guest today is probably one of the world's most sought-after physiotherapists and rehabilitation experts. That's Dr. Andrew Locke. If I just read up a few of Andrew's achievements, he's accredited in the McKinsey Spinal Method. He completed his master's degree in 2004, studying the resolution of intervertebrate disc injuries. He's a conveyor of the Australian Strength Scientists Association, the coordinator of the Ultimate Strength Summit at the Arnold Sports Festival, an IFBB Pro League judge, a current bench press Australian and world record holder, and the owner and founder of Functional Strength Rehabilitation, which he has clients from all over the world participating in Major League Baseball, MMA, you name it, sports, uh, you know, clients that probably can't even mention on camera because they're that famous and that well known. So I've known Andrew for over a decade and he's always been my go-to guy for the world of health, strength and performance and rehabilitation. So it's an absolute pleasure to welcome on to the Wolf Stand. Let's welcome Andrew Locke. <laughs> Alrighty, well, first question, this is the moment of truth, Andrew. What do you bench? Benching currently 200 kilos. Now I've got to do that next week in the comp. Right, so have you benched 200 in comp before? Not in the comp. I've missed it four times in the comp so far. And what's your best bench in training? Oh, in training, gee, back in 10, 15 years ago, it was 230. Wow. But I was just having fun because 230 was something I wanted to achieve. But yeah. now doing in the comp is a very different style of approach. And have you always had an affinity for the bench press or is it like the lift that you've decided, you know, I'm going to master this lift over the squat? If I could lay down and do an exercise, you got me, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Touche. Alrighty, well now that's over the, uh, out of the way. We've got, we've got the important stuff out. We'll start. So I suppose let's, let's do the origin story and start there yep. first. We'll jump all over the shop uh, in this interview, no doubt. And um, th as we unpack uh, Andrew's great mind. But tell us, how did you get into physiotherapy? What, what was your uh, starting point? You probably really blame Arnold Schwarzenegger for that one, I think. Um, essentially, I started my life thinking I was either going to be a professional wrestler or I was going to take up professional baseball. I played for Australia as a junior. And I was um, getting prepared to go to the States to play. And somehow I just saw a muscle magazine with Arnold Schwarzenegger on the cover and thought, that's it, I'm going to do the next Conan the Barbarian movie, right? And I thought, no, nah, I better go back to university while I'm doing that because it might take a little while. So I still haven't made one of the movies yet, but 20 years later I'm still a physio. So that's where it really took me because, um, you know, as a physio, I, was, I, sort of, I had an affinity, I suppose, more as a baseball player to being injured all the time, throwing high-velocity balls and things like this, and constantly seeing physios. So it was a profession I knew a lot about, as in, no, I like this sort of thing, it makes sense to me. And you've competed numerous times in bodybuilding as well, or is that not no, your sleep? No, 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 it's the power. <laughs> 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 no, but you've also seen a lot of top bodybuilders and oh, seen yeah, what they've... You know, yeah, like uh, Tony Doherty, who you've met before, you know, Tony and myself go back so far that I can remember him bringing out Brian Buchanan who was a Mr Universe at the time and you know, we've probably you know, seen all the great ones from the 80s onwards and probably known a lot about even the great ones from the 60s and 70s. So when it comes to the, I suppose, the science of weight training, I've read everything that possibly could have been published you know, just growing up, so you know, I tried, I've tried every routine you could possibly do. When it comes to the book of mistakes, I've written my own chapters. I can tell you, I've tried every, everything in weight training and made up a few of my own. And that's why, as a physio, I know when people come to me, they tell me they've done something particular, I'll probably have a good clue about what it is. So you're almost this uh, walker of two worlds. Um, you've got the, the hardcore 
trainer, you know, bodybuild, bodybuilding, um, you know, love the bodybuilding side, powerlifter, expert, and all these kind of things, um, you know, hardcore gym guy. But then you've also balanced it out with his super intellectual academic feats that, uh, you know, your mind reading the studies and, and really understanding them and being able to challenge a lot of the, the pseudo experts or expert, even experts and, and hang out with that. So I suppose, firstly, let's go into the, the how did you become a hardcore gym guy? What, what age were you? When was the first time you picked up a dumbbell? Mm, it's, it's tough, might have been about 16 or so. I basically, truly would say to myself, I've got a body image disorder. I wake up every morning and I see myself as small. I go to the gym to get bigger. You know, it really is, it's that sort of thing. I'm never going to be big enough. So that's been really, I think, one of the driving forces is a, an underlying look at myself and saying, physically, I don't feel I'm satisfied with my strength goals and my size goals. And intellectually, I'm still pursuing my intellectual goals, is trying to put together the most complete understanding of the biomechanics and the sciences of lifting and the sciences of injury. That's my consuming passion. When did that affinity for, I suppose, academia, where, where did that kick off? I mean, was it always, I'm just going to, I'm fascinated with the human body or was there a trigger to say, you know? It's definitely a fascination with the human body. Um, through high school, I definitely never tried hard enough. It was, I was more interested in playing sport. I was more interested in being a professional athlete than I was doing the study. It was only after I rest, left and I came back and I decided there were big gaps I needed to fill. So you played Major League Baseball? or no, no, I you played for Australia sure. as a junior. Yep. Uh, played in the Junior World Series in America. And that was really where I was seeing a career path heading. And you also and played cricket too? Yeah, I played cricket. I was selected for the Australian All-High School team as well. So you know, they were my sports at the time. But something in there changed and I started to want to lift weights and get bigger. And that does not necessarily make you a better baseball player or a better cricket player. So those sports were going to suffer when I started to get bigger. So was it due to injury that led you on the path to the, the physiotherapy? Or like, what was the moment that you said, you know, this is, this is, this is what I'm going to dedicate my life to and be an absolute master of this? Um, I still, still think I'm still developing a long way from what I've got to be yet. Mm. So I would look at it and say, it's the, those things are very unfulfilled for me. So uh, intellectually, I still think there's a lot of things I want to be perfect at. And I think the, the sciences are very established that we're pursuing. It's just the universities now are uh, doing a very poor job of educating health professionals. They've lost uh, 400 years of research. They're going off in weird places. It's just the most strange, um, almost abdication of responsibility. So my, my work now is to help prof health professionals get back on the track of saying, you know, the same science that launches a rocket to the moon by NASA is the same science you're going to apply to a deadlift. Doesn't matter what the random controlled study says. Random controlled study, if it conflicts with the fact that NASA put a, puts a rocket on the moon and knows how to do it, well, which one's wrong? Um, maybe a random controlled study didn't look at the variables that should have been looked at. So that's where I find a lot of the problems with the, the current approach to things saying, oh, what's the evidence base? The evidence base actually is science. The research sometimes is so flawed. That's not evidence. Let's, let's just get into that a bit. So for you getting into the world of physiotherapy, was there someone who, who um, I suppose you looked up to that thought, right, their body of work is very complete and that's what I want to kind of model myself as a physio physiotherapist and rehabilitation expert as? No, it's very strange to think about. I initially went into it to think I was going to get answers. I think what essentially happened was by getting a degree, I realised that it just enabled me to start finding the answers. So the first stage was... I probably thought, yeah, after four years I'm going to be a physio, I'm going to know what I'm doing. After four years, and you come out and you go, well, guess what? You really don't know a hell of a lot, but you know how not to hurt people, hopefully. Uh, you've got a few biomechanical ideas, you've got a bit of science to start you off, what are you going to do? So for me, it was like, there's big gaps in my knowledge, I wanted to become the best spine guy. 
And one of the great pieces of advice I got was that you know, most students when they graduate, they went straight to hospitals, feeling that that was a safe environment. Um, I had been asked to join a sports medicine group because I had played baseball and cricket and I knew how to throw. And I had some ideas on shoulders. So the first day of um, work that I ever had, the boss pulls me in and she goes, so your job here is to become the best in the world at something. And she looked at me and said, and I happen to be the best in the world at shoulders, so you're going to have to choose something else. <laughs> and that led me on saying, okay, what, what do you want to bring out look at? What am I less confident at in the spines? I thought that we were very um, deficient in spine knowledge. So how old were you then? Oh, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I'm still 21 now. Okay, so you're 21 back then. Um, when, when you say you're looking for answers, yep. what, what, because I mean, that's quite uh, an interesting topic. What answers were exactly were you looking for? Answers to what? What was the question that yeah, you were posing? A person who would come in who had pain in their back. How was I going to get them better? But not only how was I going to get them better, how was I going to know that what I was doing was going to get them better? So 80% of all back problems get better in four weeks regardless of the treatment. It doesn't matter whether come down and the guy slaps a fish over the top of your head five times under a full moon with those physio sticks, you know, dry needles in your butt, the osteo stretches you, the chiro cracks you. Basically the statistics are straightforward, human bodies heal. So human bodies are going to heal and it's got less to do with the practitioner in those four, first four weeks than really just your body doing the work. 92% of back problems are basically better in eight weeks. Now to me, that's not sufficient. That just means that you're basically a babysitter. You've got to know how do you get 100% of people better. How do you beat the tough cases? I love the ones that come in 10 years of failing with everybody. That's the one I want to see. Because mm. I know there's an answer underneath there. So it's a, a burning passion for me to, to never accept anything less than 100%. But what prompted you to ask that question in the first place? Um, funny enough, I think there's a, a, a pride issue. I think that there's an ego issue underneath there. And a belief that I should be better than I am. So it's always fulfilling something. It's always not believing that I'm good enough. And of course I'm not yet. Having bench what I want to bench, having lift what I want to lift, too high in body fat still, uh, intellectually still doing really well. But there's better answers out there for the occasional case I'm still having challenges with. I'll still get someone close. But I want to be I want to aim for perfection. Mm. So that's the constant goal, it's, you know, constantly polishing and refining. Doesn't matter what an exercise is, doesn't matter what the diet is, I still gotta to work towards it. Now, would you describe yourself, and this is kind of an open-ended question for a purpose, but would you describe yourself as a regular physiotherapist? Oh no. I'm the only one who does what I do. So, I actually don't even like being in the respect of being saying, actually, I'm a physio. Because I think of myself as a health professional, a scientist. Now, there's no difference to me between the professions of chiropractors, physios, osteos, myos, exercise scientists, exercise physiologists, it is the person, not the profession, that matters. If the person's got a burning desire to do what they're going to do, they're going to be the person you want to see. You don't want to see somebody who says, I'm a physio, therefore I ignore chiropractic, I ignore osteopathy, I ignore um, exercise science, I will only do what physios do. You do that, that's lazy. It means basically to me that you're not going to become really good at finding the answers. There are answers in all the professions, and I'm trying to bring them all together um, that's one of the things about the Australian Strength Scientists Association, which I'm looking for, is we're going to just bring everybody together under one banner which says we all have one burning desire to be the best we can as scientists. And that's much more important than being a physio. So yeah, if, you, if I bill it, I bill it under a physio code, but reasonably I'm the only one who does what I do. They don't teach biomechanics of the spine in universities for physios. 
So um, for those who are watching this maybe uh, on YouTube or Facebook, you say you're the only one who does what you do. Can you define like what you do? How is that different? Well, the thing about this too, there's other practitioners who have come to my courses who are also on the path that I've been on. So I would say all the, in that respect is I'm the one who's at my point in my career. But there are some really good physios, chiros, osteos, exercise scientists, myotherapists who have been to my courses and work thinking the methods that I've taught them and are learning their own things and are on their own journey the same way I was. But as physios go, what I do and what I teach physios is not what's taught in universities. So way back in the 1600s there was a fellow called Borelli. Borelli wrote the first book on biomechanics. It's called Iatrophysics. Now, he started to apply just basic lever systems, um, torque, rotation, weights, as applied to bodies in motion, whether it's animals or humans. Now, this is the basics of science. We know these things are, are real. There's no need to do a random control study on basic science. So when I look at what he started with, and I look at the evidence that especially comes after that, whether it's the physiology of, you can look things up like Lord Sherrington on nervous system, you know, way back he got his lordship for that. There's a lot of basic physiology we understand. And I think the physiology is not well, well understood by physios because you should look at length tension relationships of muscles, you should look at force velocity curves of muscles. You should understand how systems work. And they don't teach us in physio, as far as I can see, according to what I'm hearing from the physios who I've been chatting with. Um, so then I look at, say, the evidence of spine problems, which starts really very, very well back about the 1930s with the, the first important, uh, I'd say, study published on disc injury. And after that, you'd have you know, Robin McKenzie's great work on understanding how discs are influenced. There's no question about what he said. There's no question about his approach to um, diagnosis. It works for the right person. Everything's a tool in the toolkit. Now, there's professors now, Adams, for example, who you can look at his studies. His studies support what Mackenzie does. It shows how discs are influenced by different areas of pressure that you put the body in a flexion or extension. But physios are saying, oh, we don't have random controlled study for this. You're missing the point that the science is actually already established. The biology, the physics is already there. What are you looking for when you're saying there's no established lifting pattern that proves itself better than anything else in a random control study. Well that's because you haven't looked at the personal anthropometrics of every single person who put in that study. What's their femur length? What's their arm length? What's their hip socket like? All these things are going to influence how a person lifts. But if you just put a, a study together of getting 10 people in and say looking at deadlifting, you're going to get 10 different deadlifts. So would you say the field of physiotherapy at the moment um, the big difference between what you're doing and say what's being taught at university is the lack of understanding or acknowledgement of the science that's come before. Is that Spectacularly a... Spectacularly so. Uh, what really horrified me the other day was I found out there was a, one of our greatest ever physios as far as a manual therapist goes, a guy called Jeffrey Maitland. He wrote a book, two books, on manipulation, on approaches and thinking and how we look at spinal problems. Jeffrey Maitland came from the University of South Australia. I think he was a World War II fighter pilot. Brilliant mind, great techniques. So we always looked to the University of South Australia saying this is where Maitland what is at the time, he's dead now. People who went there to learn from him, it was tough. He was very, very specific about how good you had to be. Um, after him, we still follow his approach. University of South Australia, we're told, doesn't even mention his name anymore. They're running pain science, which means, hey, guess what? There's no evidence for the way um, you have back problems. 
It's all in your head. You're scared of lifting. What the hell has happened to 400 years of solid science? Great educators. Oh, we don't even talk about that anymore. Published studies that are ending up in Lancet, the English Medical Journal, which have no biomechanical input, but are all written by people who don't talk about biomechanics, who talk about, hey, guess what? 70% of problems, we don't know what the answer is. Well, maybe you don't, but there are other people in the world who do and are far better at assessing back problems. In Australia, we tend to push Australian things. So we've got a bit of an intellectual black hole occurring right now, where we're ignoring the work of Professor McGill, who's published over 240 scientific studies, published five books. No one knows more about the biomechanics of spines than Professor McGill. You won't find his name mentioned at an Australian university. What do you think happened there? Why, why is this rejection of science by the Australian, you know, I suppose, uh, rehabilitation, uh, medical professions? I think it comes down to politics about what funds a university is funding studies that are Australian, for example. So the transverse abdominis multifidus fiasco that occurred back in about 94 onwards, just trying to remember the perfect date, um, we, we all ran with the idea that there was this forced couple between multifidus and transverse abdominis. It isn't actually a forced couple, it fails first year biomechanics. They are not a forced couple, it fails that definition. But it was written by the professors at, um, at, at Queensland University that it was a forced couple. It then allowed the Pilates phenomenon to take off because they said they validated how they worked. Now, everyone's saying basically that was wrong, but it was evidence, it was Australian. So because it's Australian, everybody taught it. It was wrong. So is this, this kind of presents an interesting issue for, I know, personal trainers, strength coach and people with back problems uh, all over Australia, is should we, should we be very distrustful of our uh, rehabilitation specialists? Should we be distrustful of the physiotherapists that we're seeing because the education is subpar? I mean, I suppose it's a twofold question. Should we be distrustful? And then what do we do when we're injured? Who, who do we actually turn to if not you? Because obviously you're one guy. The challenge is, realistically, is that as professionals, we've got to become a little more solid in our understanding of the true basic sciences and look to those before we start wandering away into what study says what. We need to know our physiology outstandingly. We need to know our basic biomechanics. We should know pretty much straightforward assessment techniques. That's pretty straightforward science. It's not tough. It just takes a bit of work and a bit of application, and I think most health professionals are capable of doing that. I think that's really important, is basically we need to just find more health professionals who are separating themselves away from what's been taught and saying it's not good enough. We need to be better. So what, what does the average trainer do, right? So well, not even average trainer, what does a great trainer do? A great trainer, they have a client, they're like, yep, this is out of my pay scale, there's stuff here that I don't know. Uh, client says, you know, this has been a problem for me, I'm gonna go see a physio. They go see a physio and they get some, no, that's in your head, your trainer doesn't know what they're doing, uh, go do some cardio equipment, and then that person ends up worse. What, what, what's, some, what's some practical advice? See, well, I think the practical advice is actually that the trainers need to talk to the health professionals in the area. It doesn't matter whether it's an osteo or a physio or a chiro or an exercise scientist or an exercise physiologist. You gotta to say to them, so how do you treat a particular problem, whether it's a back problem? How do you treat a shoulder problem? And if they say, oh, we dry needle this, we stretch that, I'm just thinking that person doesn't know how to assess something. So I'd say to the health professional, or I'd say to the personal trainer, I'd say, ask the health professional who you're gonna to refer to, do you personally deadlift? Because if you don't personally deadlift, I'm not sending my clients to you because you don't know what I do. Now, I would say the same advice to someone who played tennis. If you're a tennis coach, I would advise that any health professional you see, you would say to them, do you personally do my sport? 
that's a great start. Have you personally got experience in my sport? That would be a useful start, because that person then has probably got an affinity to it. So I would never send to a generic professional. I would, as a, as a health professional, say, do you know what I do? If you don't, do you know someone who does? Hmm. So there's some good physios out there who I know who are powerlifters now, and bodybuilders, and chiropractors, and osteos, and exercise physiologists. So that's really important. I think there's some good professionals out there who are embracing strength. And that's uh, essentially what we say. You know, my, my mantra is weakness cannot be tolerated. You know, strength solutions to problems. What do, what do you think currently is the biggest myths or biggest myth in the physiotherapy realm? The biggest myth currently would probably be the concept that there is such a thing as non-specific lower back pain. So we often see this put in a study. If I see a study that says non-specific lower back pain, don't bother reading it. It means that the person cannot assess the problem, doesn't know what the direction is, basically hasn't got an ability to say whether this problem has got a flexion or extension intolerance, whether it has certain characteristics. It just means you put everything together and you did a study. If you have a study, if you have a person who's flexion intolerant, you can hear from their subjective, you can look at their objective, and you get another person who has an extension intolerance. But you can't find on the scan something on either of them. It gets lumped together as non-specific lower back pain. Now, if you get that person and those two people exercise intervention, one interflexion, well, one of them's going to get better, the extension intolerant probably, the other one's going to get worse, vice versa. Your study comes out, zero. It's because you put everything together. You didn't properly define each individual person. And that's where this idea of non-specific lower back pain doesn't exist. There's no such thing as non-specific lower back pain. There's always a specific to a back pain. There's always an answer. It just kind of means that they're not educated enough to find the answer. So go see someone who, who needs... It. And if yeah. you've got people at the tops of universities who say that 70% of them, they can't understand what 70% of the pain is. And that's one of the professors that I saw who published said, I don't know what 70% of the, my back pain problems are caused by. Well, that person's supervising studies by undergraduates. That's horrifying. That it, means that person's going to be just running studies in the same intellectual vacuum that they have. It almost seems that universities are almost being offended by the facts in a way to keep a political political correctness not to offend people and say no this is this is not right and this is good yeah. and yeah which is quite a, a sad state of, of, of academia. Basically I think a big thing against is they're not acknowledging that overseas are actually better than us. Mm. Who, do you, who do you think overseas wise all over the world who do you think produces the best uh, rehabilitation specialist? No doubt at this point uh, Professor Stuart McGill the most progressive individual the most experienced individual far as memory spent over half a billion dollars in research money at least on work no doubt the person who I would approach from the most open-minded, philosophical approach to science. Uh, what, what's been some key takeaways for you from the work of Professor? Um. Um, to examine everything. To basically test your hypothesis. You, gotta, you find a finding, apply an intervention against it, reassess your intervention. Basically what I learned, at the, you know, even as I learned from the Maitland system, that's what we did then. Apply an intervention, assess. Is your hypothesis right or is it wrong? If it's wrong, change your hypothesis. What's a hypothesis that you've believed for years and then applying this kind of thinking, you've, you've proved yourself that actually that's not so. Has it been something that springs to mind? Not so far. It's looking pretty good. Basically, by the time I've, I've got a hypothesis, I've got a good reason for it. Yeah, awesome. Let's so within a session, sometimes I go, that didn't work quite as well as I thought. 
perhaps if I unload it further, it might change, or perhaps I increase the load, it may change. That's probably how I have to go. It might be a load choice. So if I'm looking at a person's QLs, I might have to look at a way of, hmm, maybe the side plank didn't work as well as I thought it would. Maybe that we'll do a suitcase lunge and see what that does. And basically, maybe that involved in some glute. Now I've got to look at the glute involvement then. So basically, it's like an evolving thing. If I'm doing an assessment, I'm evolving within the assessment. And the big thing about that is, I can take an hour for an assessment at least. Professor McGill is well known for taking a whole day on a single patient to find out the tough ones. Now, you walk down to the local, as I call them, sausage factory, and you're in there, and the physio chucks some needles in your butt and heads off to the next room, or puts a hot pack in your back and heads off to the next room, or it goes to the next room, the chiropractor lays you down, cracks your back out in five minutes. Hey, there's no assessment, there's no reassessment, there's no science behind it. It's basically, I'm under time pressure, I've got to sort of figure out how to make this work. That's an old model that I think should be basically banned. And all the good chiropractors I know would say the same thing. I've got a, a great neurosurgeon I know in Perth. Now he sends his clients to a chiropractor for rehab. His chiropractor knows how to deadlift. Well, there you are. I reckon it's a great chiropractor. It's not the profession, it's the individual. So let's talk about a slightly different topic, but still on the lines of myths and misconceptions, and that's Pilates and Joseph Pilates. Yeah. Uh, can you tell, give us your thoughts and I suppose what happened in the Supreme Court? Yeah, well, basically the problem which I found with Pilates was that it's, he died in about the 1960s. He wasn't a scientist, he was a creator of things to sell. Basically, if you look up, you can probably find a lot of interesting, wacko things he created. The reformer just happens to be one of them. And when he died, a lot of different students basically determined that they thought they knew his system well. So as it goes, it mutates. Someone decides they want to trademark the Pilates name, so it ends up going to the Supreme Court in the US, and the Supreme Court basically says, you know what, there's so many different versions of Pilates, we can't define it. We can't say that there is this is the true Pilates, basically no one can trademark it. So it becomes this open thing where I can walk my dog and say I'm doing Pilates. I can brush my teeth and say I'm doing Pilates. <laughs> no, there's no Pilates international body that says, no, that's not wrong, this is a series of things that we do. And Unfortunately, I think when the transverse abdominus multiplicus thing came out, the Pilates people said, hey, this validates what we do. We pull our belly buttons in. Well, the bad news is, of course, that's now been proven to be dead wrong. So it invalidates the Pilates and it's doing back there. But Pilates now morphed into a new thing. Fortunately, uh, uh, there's a health professional I know who's sort of looked at the same problem and he's a bit of a Pilates advocate. And he sort of looked and said, yeah, what we've got to do is we've got to say, I like the reformer but I'm going to set down a standard series of exercises, movements and assessments using that reformer that will become under my name a standard protocol. Now that's what Pilates is missing, it doesn't have a standard protocol. So you can go to 10 different Pilates places and get 10 different things. But if you set up a serious protocol on the reformer as an exercise piece of equipment, I'm happy to say that you're a scientist and you're starting to make some evolution, you're starting to get rid of the rubbish. So that's the problem with the Pilates thing is, it's like saying yoga. Is yoga good or bad for you? It depends on the practitioner. It could be good, it could be bad. So essentially, everyone today, pretty much watching this, if they're owning a gym or a personal trainer, they could say, yeah, we do clinical Pilates. You could, no one's gonna be able to stop you. Yeah, and be then deadlifting heavily and uh, you know, the squat bench and-, and Well, Pilates is fine. Yeah, yeah. it's also, yeah. No one can stop you. 
All right. In interesting, eh? So, um, uh, kettlebell, kettlebells have, in some regard, gotten a bit of a bad rap uh, by particular strength coaches and, and I suppose the industry in general. Uh, sometimes people just don't know how to use them. Mm. So, uh, I mean, the kettlebell swing, let's, let's go start with the kettlebell swing first and kind of unpack kettlebells. Yeah. But kettlebell swing, good or bad? Depends on the individual, depends on the problem. So it, there's no such thing as a bad exercise. It, there basically is just the wrong exercise given to the wrong person at the wrong time. That exercise might be great at the right time, but at that time it's the wrong one. So this, one of the studies that was done very well, it was McGill's study, looked at a particular style of kettlebell swing, and when you add up the mathematics, you basically pull things apart, it's like, you know, you're basically looking at how things, forces are occurring in the body. So he found out that the net effect was that there was a posterior shear on the spine with a kettlebell swing of the particular style he used. Now, is that a bad thing or a good thing? Depends on the person you're going to apply it to. There are certain people who a posterior shear force, which is just how the muscles will work, will actually make that person better. They were deficient in that posterior shear. That's something they needed. They needed a balancing force to an anterior shear. But you've got somebody else who the posterior shear is not going to be very effective for. It's going to make them worse because that's actually part of their problem. So you're going to know whether it's a posterior shear problem, an anterior shear problem, and the kettlebell's fine. So on that, uh, is, is the kettlebell a mutually exclusive rehabilitation tool? Is that how practitioners should be looking at it? As it's only, it's not really a tool for anything else? I think you could use it for anything. Great conditioning. You could use it, I, mean, I use it for teaching lifting patterns. Um, yeah. It could be used for any any version of perhaps almost any exercise you want. Just have to have some damn big kettlebells sometimes. You know, I've got up to 92 in my clinic at the moment for kettlebells. Well, if you can deadlift, <laughs> <laughs> if you can deadlift more than that, well, you, you need to move away from kettlebells if that's your goal. Something you taught me a while ago was you should have phases in your training, uh, practice, train, performance. And the problem with a lot of people is they don't have any practice phase. They don't learn the movement patterns. They don't learn the lift. Mm. They just go into training or worse. They go from basically what they should be a practice phase into performing. And you see a lot of one rep numbers when they really shouldn't be because the, the, the movement. So how long would you in your clinic, to, would it take to say someone says, you know what, I want to be an Australian deadlifting champion. How long does it take to grind a good movement pattern to then say, yep, you're, you've done practicing, let's go into training. If you want to get to reasonably, uh, in a federation that has got well established, not a new one that started last week in the backyard and you can get a world record from. If you look at really established great federations, it should take you at least three years to learn the skill of how to perform with that deadlift, squat, bench press. And at that point, if you've been training consistently, you know, I would say that means no less than three times a week on the lift that you're trying to do. I don't mind for seven days a week in practice then I would expect it would take about three years for you to have a one rep max that I would probably feel that you're going to be safely performing without changing in your technique. So that's a lot of work to be done. Some people, it may take a year, but then again, you're looking at biological tissue under stress, it can take a lot longer than one year for your bones to know how to handle 150 kilos. You might be able to physically do it, but you may not be doing it in such a way that's actually beneficial to you as a person that your bones may not be accepting it. You may need a little bit more time to take um, time off, time to recover from the heavy sessions. There's a lot, lot to it, the biology of recovery too. So I would say technically you can practice every day, but you might practice at 50%. I'm gonna do a bit of bench press here today. I'll probably go up to 
just to practice so I can peak next week. And you've seen that certainly in your practice people who have been quite proficient at lifts, uh, broken bones on, say, a bench press, mm. you know, snapped humeruses and yeah. all kinds of issues. Um, you know, I've heard, heard, certainly heard the war <laughs> stories and, and seen that, which has been pretty nasty. And you look at some of those people and you go, well, that, that shouldn't happen, but it does. And that's just simply because the adaptation on a, on a skeletal level just hasn't happened. That would probably be it. For most of those, that would be the best explanation we'd always have for why a bone is broken under a load because it hasn't adapted. Um, I know that if you look at the bones of people who have been in uh, you know, some of the institutions in America for you know, 40, 50 years have been lifting weights and you look at their, their cadaver. They have adapted, they're solid. There's positives and negatives to that. So I think uh, you've mentioned before Bev Francis. Yeah. Would you say she, she was very good at uh, understanding the practice, training, performance kind of thinking style in terms of her training? Because she trained, what, the same, same lift almost every day? Well, the thing about Bev, who's in my mind perhaps Australia's greatest ever athlete, if you really want to have a look at the history of Bev Francis, you can look at somebody there who, she actually, it was interesting because I, I chased Bev for a while because I always wanted to know how she set the Australian bench press record. I think it was 150, um, I'm trying to remember what it could be, 155 I think it was. And that stood for 34 years. I, she, I think she looked at me and thought I was a stalker because she used to run away. But one day she had to sit ne next to me on a judging panel. And I finally turned around and said, Bev, so how, how did you bench the 155? And she looked around and suddenly realised I actually had a question I was supposed to answer. <laughs> so Bev said, bench press, squat and deadlift seven days a week. We got chatting. And I said, you benching 150 kilos as a female, seeing the world record, I said, that was like Roger Bannister breaking the... Um, four-minute mile. And she said, yeah, we both had the same coach. So there was a coach who knew how to create top-level athletes. And his approach was, you practiced every day. So it didn't mean you busted about you know, max singles every day. But if it was Monday, it might be a big bench session. Tuesday, you might go in there with 50% of the weight. Work on your technique. Might be a day when you're doing squat training. That's where you do your hard work, but you still practice your bench and your deadlift. Maybe that's why she won as many world championships as she did. It's the fact that practice creates better neurological patterns, if you do it right. So is this, is this how you structure your training now? I mean, yeah, do you bench much. every day? Yeah, bench every day. Yeah. I mean, not massive amounts, but you know, within a cycle and a program. And out of the program, I put my hands on the bar every day and set up and try and find that groove. So Even last week, I actually found a whole new cue I'm going to let everyone know about today. So on that, let's say your max is 200 kilos on your bench. Um, do you have a structure of your week of like, okay, Monday's going to be max, you know, Tuesday's going to be 50%. Like, is there, is there a reason or rhyme? Is there a structure to it or is it how it you is, feel? And I'm not a programming scientist. So I allow programming scientists to help me. So I will ask someone like Gus Cook in Queensland, who's very good for my powerlifting programming. Sebastian Orev, coach the world's strongest man. I ask him for advice as well, so we work together. So I don't program myself, I practice myself. Is, is Sebastian a train every day kind of guy? Is he in terms of the programming that he, he recommends? And he practices every day. Practice every day. No doubt, you can see the results. Mm. No doubt, there's a guy who pisses me off greatly. He weighs about 40 kilos, less than I was, he weighs, what was he, 110 today, and um, I'm 135, so he's 25 kilos less than me, and our bench me by probably 40 kilos. Yeah. Fantastic athlete. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, what do you think the worst thing that someone could do for their, their when I say back, I'm really talking about lower back, 
uh, and I suppose lumbar spine. Uh, but what do you think the worst thing someone can do for their back? Well, the worst thing you could possibly do is keep doing the thing that you've always done that has caused you the problem. That's the classic one. So someone hurts their back and, some, and the professional says, okay, rest it for a few weeks. Okay, you rested it for a few weeks, now you go back, you're not feeling in pain. What have you done different? You've changed nothing. Definition of insanity. Do the same thing, expect a different outcome. So the worst thing I think anyone can do for a back problem, keep doing whatever you've been doing. Because there's a problem with it. Find out what that problem is, make a change. Rest is not what you ever do. You've got to actively figure out, hopefully under the guise of somebody who knows what they're doing, usually a biomechanically educated professional who's seen me at least, and learn and find out what is it about you, what you do that's been hurting you. Stop it. That's usually number one. One of the great things about it is I get people who come and see me who have seen a lot of other health professionals and they show me what they've been doing and I just say, well, if you stop doing that, the exercise somebody gave you, you'll feel better. That's the reason you've got a problem, is you've been doing that exercise that somebody else gave you. What's a common intervention that you would give for back pain? Wow. Uh, what I'd love to do now is, again, just to give the, the viewers at home and everyone in the audience a, a real insight into the way Andrew thinks, is um, to get someone out. And uh, I'm thinking we go for Adrian and uh, get Adrian up. Let's give Adrian a round of applause. He's one of the great trainers here at Enterprise. Um, we'll use this box so you can see it. We've got him in position um, and you can see what's going on. But would you be able to uh, uh, give, give a, a bit of an assessment and, and demo? So, so, Adrian, is there anything wrong with you besides <laughs> the obvious? <laughs> no. But if you, if you, you get to have a client and, um, you know, you've got a client for the first time and they, they come in, like, what's the, like, run us through the way you think about things. Oh, it's, a, it's a long process because I take at least 20 minutes to talk to the client. So, one of the first things I'd say is, Adrian, you know, what's, what problem do you have? Oh, well, mostly I get tight traps. 
big problem. Yeah. And um, this tight hip kind of leads to sciatica pain. Sometimes. Now, the interesting is, where's your hip? Show me the hip. Yeah. All right. Now, if we were using the back of the hand, I'd say to myself, okay, so we've got a different version of what the hip is. Yeah. But if we're using more with the thumb, it's like getting pretty close. So it's always important, I find, to get the person's anatomy defined with your anatomy. Because somebody says hip and they point to their, their knee, okay, we probably got lost because we've got two different versions of what the hip is. But that's okay, now you point to what I know what you're talking about. Now, one of the problems I always get here is a couple of times a week, if not a day, I'm going to get a person who comes in and they're going to say, so what's your problem? They pull out a scan and say, I've got an L4-5 disc bulge. I'm going to say, no, that's a diagnosis. I just asked you what your problem was. Because the thing is, what is the pro person's problem? I don't treat a diagnosis, I treat a problem. So when a person says, I've got shoulder bursitis, I didn't ask what your diagnosis is, I said, what's your problem? What can't you do? What gives you pain? Now that's the super important part for me. So when you want to know how I think, this is how I think. I want to define what the person's problem is, not what diagnosis they've been given. Because people sometimes possess diagnosis. And I don't want to possess a diagnosis, I want to understand a problem. So it starts letting the person know I'm actually looking at what, what are they feeling? A lot of times they've had problems with professionals who come in, they'll put in a, a scan report down on the table and the professional will read the report and suddenly that's doing everything. Anyone walks in to see me with the scans, I told them to put them on the table or put them under the chair because we're not going to look at them until I've done everything I can do, then I'll look at them last. The whole idea is to be totally clear-minded and see a person as a new person. Someone comes and say, oh, I've got my last 50 hours notes. Good, put them away, I'll see them last. I don't want to know what anyone else has thought until I've seen you. That's the sort of approach I tend to take. So if we came back and said, this would take a long time because I would go, okay, so you get a sciatica thing. How do you define sciatica? What, what do you feel? What is that for you? Where, where do you feel it? For example, I would say, if not go about it, go, go through it, it'll take an hour or two. I'd also say, okay, so when do you feel it? When you're doing what? What makes it feel better? What makes it feel worse? We go and pull all these things apart. So I've got an idea about what forces a person has a problem with. And then I'm going to ask things like, you know, whether there's a constant nature to it, whether there's an intermittent nature to it. I want to know whether there's an inflammatory component to it. I want to know the history behind it. Basically, there's a lot of questions. I'll take them probably yeah, 20 minutes quite easily. Sometimes someone walks in and I've got it probably within 30 seconds, I know what the problem is. But I'll still go through all the questions just to make sure I haven't missed anything. And I'll teach you a lot of those questions today as we go through. So what would we like to look at today, Mark? So I think what we're talking about, which is uh, one of the, the common uh, interventions that you give, which is the back bend. Yep. Uh, maybe we get Adrian to demonstrate where he's at. Well, and it depends, Adrian. Do you have problems sitting, standing, walking? What tends to be your problem? Um, well, it's more so when I like not use it. That, that's when it gets really tight. Yep. And I find that um, I can't, when I shift out, it feels like it shifts. Does that make sense? Yep, sure. Kind of like, it feels like muscle shifting out there. All right. We could do a fairly quick um, style of approach of, of a test grading, right? So you've had no diagnosis of any strange conditions? We'll whip off the um, wolf pack top there. We just want to have a look at a movement pattern as Marcus suggests we have a nice time um, sitting down for a while. Show me how and far you can go bending forward to touch your toes. Can I just get you to stand up on the, uh, so everyone can see? Stand up on the box. There you go. Perfect. And face me. Good. And just do your thing. Bend forward. All right. And come back up. So what I've looked at there, at this point, because I'm saying in front, I just looked at how far he went, okay? Now, normally I'm going to actually look at how I'm going to be straight off, and I'm going to look at 
how we got there, more importantly. But it's good to be able to do flexion extension at the moment. Okay, so put your feet a little wider apart for balance, so don't fall off there. Put your hands on your hips and bend backwards. Good, that's fantastic for about a 75 year old. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I want you to do that 10 times now, bending backwards, and each one I want you to go a little bit further back. His upper body's centre of mass behind the disc. That's their basic concept on the idea. Hips forward, shoulders back. So that's at least turning into a 50 year old foot. If you wanted to explain what was happening on a yeah, vertebra. Well, yeah. Now, come on, can you do better than that, seriously? Yeah. Give me two more. I'll, I'll just repeat the question for the audio, and that's Andrew, how far would you want them to go? What's the gold standard? Uh, probably age appropriate. How's that? Okay, now bend forward and touch your toes again and look at what you got. What do you think? Alright, it increased slightly, didn't it? Was it easier? Yeah. Now, what happened? Why is this flexion increased but we didn't stretch flexion, did we? Normally you think if you get further than that, back to the rest of it. This starts to make you think about the way you do things too. Why is it going one direction? the other one, yet normally you think that you'd have to go that direction to get there. Well, the concept here goes back to the 1930s, but especially 1972, when the great Robin McKenzie, um, who's work you can find and read his book, uh, Lumbar Disorders, and he wrote his own book called Treat Your Own Back, which is a really great, straightforward explanation. The concept is here, this is our, what our spine looks like in Adrian. Now, as he's been sitting, he's been sitting doing that, uh, like a kid's party balloon, if you put pressure down the front here, the disc fluid in the centre gets pushed backwards. So when he goes to bend forward, his spine's already a little bit forward anyway, and the disc pressure is up towards the back. It doesn't really want to go that much. All right, and as he then bends backwards, he puts pressure here, which causes the disc fluid to move forwards. Now as this force materials move forwards, now it's centered. So when he goes into flexion, his body's not going to resist the ground, that thing. I now feel better, I've got more movement, I've got pressures off, and centres to be normal. So I took 10 movements there to improve his flexion. Now that's one of the things I might look at, all depends upon where my hypothesis is lying, because this is an objective. Now, I could put him through a series of stability tests now as well, and find out, which probably would happen, is the more stable I make him, the more range of movement he'll have as well. So suddenly, Without stretching, I made him tighter. By making him tighter, he gets more range out of his body. So we use the concept here also then to say that proximal stability unleashes distal ability. Thank you, Professor McGill, for that, because I think he should have the T-shirt. I think he said it first. And it's the approach we take. I look at things from the passive tissues, as we just did then, and then I also look at the active ones, how do we stabilise. I'm going to take you through that today, because that's really important. Teach you how to assess basically understanding where the passive tissue insufficiency might come in and how we might use active tissues to make up for that. This goes back to a research paper and book written by Punjabi and White in about 1984.
called neutral zone theory. So it's not really theory as much as evolutionary theory. It's just it's like saying it's a construct of fact. So we're going to look at how neutral zone theory affects the way that you frame, how you affect the back problem. Let's give Adrian a round of applause. So I know that you've said before with the backbends, some people it's like, oh, you know, you're not auditioning for Circus All A. Yeah. So I suppose just coming back to Reese's question of, um, you know, what, what is a appropriate gold standard? Range. Appropriate range, yeah, for depending on the sport. Like, is, is there a... That's a good way of putting it too. What is that person's requirement in their activity? How much extension should I need to have? So if I have someone from Circus All A who's a contortionist, I'd better make them get that full position. That's what they need. Oh, if I've got a tennis player, I know how much bicep I should be working with there. What do you, when you analyse, for example, a tennis serve, you might look at it and say, okay, that's how much extension I should be expect to see there. That's an important thing too. Um, so when you look at a sport, now if we're looking at, say, powerlifting, I'm looking at uh, squatting or deadlifting, there's not a whole lot of extension I have to deal with there. But if they are lacking into extension, it may have had a big influence upon why they're in the position they are. So I sort of look at it as what a healthy movement looks like to me, having seen you know, 75,000 patients, I've got a bit of an idea about where I would rate a person as per age effective. So we'll sort of look at that a little bit today as we go through. So in, in saying all that, uh, I mean, one of the things you touched on was, you know, you go one way and then it increases range of motion the other way. Mm. Is, is it an oversimplification to then start to think on that line of thought? If someone does or experience lower back problem, there's probably the, the abs aren't working the way they should. Therefore, a good intervention should be basically training the abs. Is that a way to look at it? Or? Well, what we would do there is we would, from the subjective history where I'm talking to a person about what they do, how they do it, I will get a clue as to whether that is the problem. Then as I stand up and I do an objective assessment, I'll get a bit of an idea what their ab tone's even looking like too. Then I might look at a movement pattern and see whether that ab tone is actually working. So there are people out there who definitely, I mean, it's almost universal to say there are not a lot of people who would have a detriment to working their abs and working and understanding how to control their core well. But that also comes with the balance of saying their extensors and their spine have got to work. QL's got to work. Psoas has got to work. Lats have got to work. At least 10 muscles there I think of as core. So I think, I think a lot about 10 different muscles, but obviously you know, when we go back to one of the most common areas of problems, weak abs, weak butt. Yeah, you run into those two things, weak abs and weak butt. That's probably in, you're going to get better than your 80% success rate and start hunting up those problems. And I think that's a good way for a health professional to go. Like what I was told, become the best in the world at something. Okay, pick a muscle, pick a joint, understand how it works, pick an exercise. Become really good at understanding that. When you understand the principles of that, you'll start to find other principles start to apply to other parts of the body very similar. So deadlifts, which is a, a topic probably close to, to your heart and uh, yeah. a lot of people's heart watching this. Um, it's almost paradoxical though when we talk about deadlifts because on one side of the fence you have people shouting that deadlifts are bad and if you pick up a bar you know uh, it's 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 going to hurt your back and put down the deadlift and, and how bad they are and then on the other side of the fence you have people saying you know deadlifts basically cure all and they put up videos on on youtube where it's it's a completely absurd form and they're shouting you know as long as the bar stays close to the shins you'll be fine and, and deadlifts are safe just make sure you, the universal rule that the bar doesn't travel away from the body and obviously they're both uh, extreme perspectives and they're both misguided in, in, in truth. So yeah, uh, let, let's start there. I mean, what, what are your thoughts on the deadlift and, and 
kind of navigating those both extreme ends. Yeah, let's look at it from the point of view of saying there is no such thing as a bad exercise. There's just the wrong exercise to the wrong person at the wrong time. It's not going to deadlift. I've had banned two athletes from deadlifting. They don't need it for their sport. The structures aren't right for it. Don't do it. Cost to benefit ratio isn't there for them. But um, that's two people I can think of. Now I see you know, 50, 60 people a week. Gee, over the last few years, I've told two people I shouldn't deadlift. Right? I mean, pretty much everybody else I've been able to work with has a form of a deadlift that I may use within a rehabilitation pattern. Might not be a conventional, might be a sumo, might be a hybrid. Lots of parts to it. What's my rationale for using it? Well, I can really well to drive somebody into learning how to use their glutes for another task. So I was working with a fantastic athlete the other day who does strong woman work. And she was working on keg lifting. Felt her hips weren't coming through well enough. So I just brought out the band, put her into a box squat on here, put the band around a conventional position, and worked on the glutes from there. Went back into the keg lift, fantastic glutes fired up. I started it with a sumo, thinking, mm, I want to get the glutes fired up. She's got the best hip range I'll ever find. That sumo wasn't going to work her in the pattern that the keg lift was going to work. So when I look at deadlifting, I look at it the same way. What am I using it? What am I going to use it for? Am I using it to rehab a back problem? Am I looking to increase the size of a, a muscle group that's there? Yeah, I can use it there pretty well. That person has a driving reason they want to deadlift. Good, then I must make them learn how to deadlift. But once again, as I said, I've met two people who I think straight away don't have a deadlift. Now, if someone came to me and wanted to be a world powerlifting champion and they had those unfortunate genetics, I'd tell them to take up chess. This seriously is going to be a car wreck. You know, that's not worth rolling the dice on. Pretty much everyone else I can work something into. But you've got to be honest with people too. Seriously, if you're not made for this and you're going to be taking on people who are biomechanically superior to you and have just as much drive and resilience and will, then they'll come through. So I love deadlifting. I think it's one of the most primal, normal things to do. As you just said, if someone says, keep the bar close to your shins, that's the rule. Not for everybody. There's the problem. A rule has to be broken by somebody. And if you only understand the rule and you don't understand the parameters which break the rule, then you're going to hurt the one who the rule should be broken for. So there are some people, great, closer to the shin the better. Other people, get back over the midfoot. That's where you need to be. Because their shoulder position may have to be better to get the bar forward. Their femur lengths might be the wrong femur lengths for that person to be at the top. So you, you've studied uh, world record breaking deadlifters. Yeah. What, what's, what's the pattern? What's the commonality that you've found? Oh, the commonality. The thing about every world record I've ever seen really truly set, it uses a technique that no novice should ever go near. Because the whole point of it, it's like Formula One racing. Okay? You look at the world record holders and breakers in deadlifting, their technique is very similar to driving a Formula One car. It's an edgy thing that you must have so much experience knowing how to control them. Now, you put a learner driver onto a Formula One track in a Formula One car, what is going to happen? It's going to crash, and it'll probably be pretty freaking horrific, okay? You have to teach a novice technician, a, a novice lifter, a whole different series of things before they will ever get to world championship levels. You've got to teach them how to control lots of things, how to switch lots of things on, how to use everything before they will morph into, okay, now you've actually got this, you're not getting injured, we're going to change the spine position, we're going to change the bar position. That changes, and that's my call is it takes about three years to go from put your hands on the bar to you've got a hell of a good technique. 
So that technique that that learner has to have, put on the L plates, make them safe. Because they don't want to mistrain, they don't want to be hurt for a couple of years, which can happen. You want to get them as a professional too. It loses you money if your client's not coming in to train with you. Yeah. So it's really important. You get to the world champion, you'll find that, yeah, it's pretty close to a stiff-legged deadlift for most of the conventionals. Big spinal flexions. Yeah, but they can do that now. But don't do it to your novice. So technically, do you think uh, there is some overlapping things in terms of, I know you've spoken about vertical tibias uh, with world, breaking, world record breaking deadlifters. Mm. Do you think that rule does apply? Or I mean, I know it it's depends. The, it's the rule that absolutely applies to setting world records. But so not for novice. It, exactly. With a novice, you may allow them to come forward while you have to learn to get their hips into a certain position or their back into a certain position. Everything changes for the novice. Make them safe, make them work. So as far as physics goes, hey, vertical shin is imperative to apply maximum force to the ground. Gives you maximum ground, ground reaction force. That's a fact. And if you watch every video of the world record set, that's how it's done. So they will achieve that position. And they'll achieve it probably with the help of the spinal flexion as well. That's okay. This is what I love about uh, you know speaking to you and really talking all things physical culture is because you know, there's a topic that people are so dogmatic about and you usually get this black or white answer, Here, here's the way it is. It, it's, it's when you express, and just on this topic of deadlifting, it really is all the colours of the rainbow of yes, but, uh, it depends if. And I think it's a, a re I really appreciate, I think everyone watching really appreciates the, the angle and it, it's just great to see. And that's how we don't get people injured, is accepting that everybody is different and listen to find out what those differences are, look to find out what those differences are. You know, people might, for example, say, I've got... You know, short hamstrings. You probably haven't got short hamstrings, you've probably got tight hamstrings. All right, well, there's a difference between the two things. You know, realistically, most people can achieve the splits today if we're able to, you know, make them unconscious and, you know, stretch it out. Because the muscle length is there, but we have limiting switches. Our bodies have learned how to limit certain movements. And part of our work may be having to get harness that tension better. It's almost in the in the strength community and rehabilitation of personal trainers, people have identified themselves with certain beliefs and they become very dogmatic because that's the identity and I suppose dogma that they, they put on themselves and they have to portray this to the to the audience rather than in terms of what you're saying is well there is no there is no identity to begin with, it's just science and let's look at that and, and then from that, uh, our, our body of work, we can then decipher and get rid of the identity kind of politics of this is who I am, this is how to relate to and actually care and look after our clients. In a, in a such thing. If 
talk about that another time. Just on that, you said something before previously. There's a Cairo in uh, Queensland, I think you said that that uh, Perth, yeah. Perth that you refer to. What's something that you look for in other allied health professionals, whether it be chiros or, or osteos? Like, because uh, there, there has been this baiting, I, I feel, from the chiropractic and physiotherapists, where they've never, the two professions have never got along. Um, but that here you are saying, you know, there's there's chiros who now you, you communicate with and talk to. They're coming to your courses. So, what do you think's a good good, uh, I suppose, trademark of um, good practitioners like this, like chiros? What's how do they think differently? Well, one of the things I've found is that the uh, the chiropractic approach was very central because the spine was the cause of all problems. Now you can look, you don't, you can, you can not throw the baby out with the bathwater on this one. Okay. understanding is going to make you keep getting better. So I'm never content. So you've, um, I know I'm personally a client uh, that you've rehabbed, but you've rehabbed multiple shoulder injuries through bench pressing. Yeah. Yeah. If you, if you presented that, I suppose, to the average physiotherapist, uh, I think they'd say, you know, what? That, that's, that's absolutely crazy. You know, you're supposed to not bench press at all. So, you know, how? Tell us about that process of how you figure yeah. that one out. Movement patterning. So if a person has pain on bench pressing, for example, okay, it mightn't be the first session we're going to bench press as a rehab exercise, but I will pull the components apart and find out why they're getting pain with their benching, address those components with the end goal that the bench press becomes a technique that actually just makes them stronger and reinforces the pattern that will prevent their, their pain in the future. In other words, they're bench pressing wrong, something's gone wrong. 
they're not using a certain pattern, they're not using a certain muscle group. So then if I can use that muscle group into the pattern of bench press, I got my rehab and they're happy. So that's one way approaches. Although that is the movement that they're hurting on, it's only because they're doing it wrong or something is missing somewhere. And then by the time I've got into three or four sessions in a track, probably we should, the client myself, know exactly what I'm asking them to do, where the problem lies, and we can use it as a rehab method. So I know people uh, watching this, uh, strength coaches particularly, might be familiar with some systems of uh, strength coaching where you're looking at, say, for example, a bench press or a squat or even a front squat and looking at other lifts that are going to contribute to it. So say, for example, if your bench press is, say, 100 kilos, then you need your you know, seated military press to be 66 kilos. If, if you can bench press 100 kilos, then uh, reflectively external rotation on knee should be, say, 10% of what you can bench press, which means you, know, you should be doing 10 kilos and, and these kind of numbers going forward. Have you seen any correlation or do you have a system to, you know, if I want to hit this, this is what it needs to be. No, no, because I'll tell you what, the very best athletes, I mean, the most successful athletes who come and see me are usually the most dysfunctional athletes. Okay, the guy who's gonna be bench pressing 230 kilos is probably unable to lift one kilogram in the right position that I wanna see him in external rotation. Now I can probably get a girl who's a ballet dancer who can lift that one kilo, but probably has trouble lifting 20 in a, in a bench. So those, those numbers don't really correlate at all. What I tend to find though, it's very individual, is that the biggest and the best and the strongest are so dysfunctional usually, quite often, at least the ones who see me, there are the ones who have addressed those dysfunctions and now really move well. But initially, a lot of the ones I get to see are, they might be able to operate magnificently with 90% of the dysfunction that anybody else couldn't move with. And then you get somebody else who's got a 5% dysfunction and can't move at all, it can't hurt, it hurts too much. There's such a thing I think with these, the strong athletes is they, they don't feel the pain the same way because they're structurally put together, physiologically a little bit different. But it's a really amazing thing to see how dysfunctional top people are, yet unique to make a little bit of difference and suddenly they're out of pain and they're performing really well. But underlyingly you go, that person's still pretty dysfunctional. Whereas you get other people who aren't very resilient, who it takes a little bit and they can't function. That's why it's such an individual thing. The really great athletes I'm seeing now who have done the hard rehab are now performing and functioning really, really well and accepting the fact that there were some big deficits that got them to be in pain. So a hybrid athlete or an athlete essentially searching for balance, you know, I want to be fantastic at like say, uh, you know, bench, squat, deadlift and be able to run and be performing an X, Y. I mean, are we really chasing a myth on that? Absolutely. You know what, if you want to be, if you want to be a nobody in life, you get really balanced, all right? It means you'll be absolutely shit at everything. <laughs> if you want to be good at something, something is going to be sacrificed. Hey, the world record bench press holder, you know, probably doesn't run that fast. You know, if you want to be really, really great at something, something is going to be sacrificed. And it might be money, it might be a job, it might be relationships, it's other exercises. But to be the best at something is sacrifice. A balanced athlete is not going to be great at anything particular. They're going to be an amalgamation of a lot of things. So that's what you tend to find. Have, successful people are successful. Have you worked with any CrossFit athletes? 
And would you say the most successful CrossFit athletes are either, and this is just my simple observation, um, either ex-gymnasts or ex-weightlifters because they essentially started out specialising as something and then went into a hybrid, whereas what a lot of CrossFitters in, say, CrossFit boxes will do is they will try and be a hybrid of everything and then end up being nothing. Is that consistent with what you've seen? Where great athletes will still dominate in something. But you'll tend to find you know, that... Olympic weightlifting, for example, is such a sport that if you really want to take it up, you better be biomechanically able to move from that pattern. You know, hip structures are super important. Having the right lever length is super important. That's why you look at who the most successful ones are. They are biomechanically gifted people. So I know there's people who will be watching this, probably myself included a little bit. It's like, damn it, I, want, I still want to be a hybrid. At, I want to be good at but a lot of things. Is words are good. You want to be good at it. But you're not going to be great at it. If you want to be great, something's going to sacrifice. You're going to give up something. But you can be good at lots of things, but that's what you'll be, you'll be good. There's a lot of good athletes around. I don't know their names. I know great athletes. <laughs> Touche. Yeah. Touche. What's, what's the uh, worst injury that you've seen? No, it's interesting. The worst injury... It's almost so used to seeing things now that... I think worst has to be more defined upon how it impacts a person's life, not actually how you think it is as a car crash risk. Um, because how... What it depends on a person is a, probably a, a psychological level, how it impacts them upon their life and how they're going to perform. You know, because you can see broken bones and people are going to go, yeah, I'm okay, I'll be back. And they do get back. And you can see other people have, you know, smaller things which impact greatly. So it's really hard to say the worst injury, because most of them seem to come back. You know, if you have a serious knife, you know, injury, then Well, let me rephrase the question. What's, what's probably the worst injury that you have been a part of and seen and then been able to successfully rehabilitation? I know in my mind, just to kind of prompt a, a thought, I, I remember seeing on Facebook a spine that was, was pretty battered and, um, you know, x-ray one and then x-ray two was a spine that looked pretty damn healthy. Uh, I mean, that's one that kind of comes to mind. What, what's, what's been there? Yeah, you could look at those where causing the person to have a behavioural reaction to it. 
Folks, you're watching The Wolf's Den. My name is Mark Atobri. This is my guest, Andrew Locke. We'll be back, right back after this short break. Make sure you subscribe to us on YouTube for more great interviews just like this one. Welcome back to this episode of The Wolf's Den. I'm Mark Atobri, here with Andrew Locke. Let's get into a game that I like to play. Uh, this is the one word game. Yep. Um, so I'm going to say a topic and uh, you're going to give it an answer in one or two words. So for example, for those who haven't played this game before, um, I might say something like legs and you might say squats. All right. The association game. Great. Yeah, exactly. You ready to go? Tell me what you got. All right. Pilates. <laughs> Cult. <laughs> uh, yoga. Yin yang. Uh, muscle magazines. Inspirational. A good book. Hunter Thompson. Biggest meathead you know. You'll have to ask Aussie Muscle Asylum about that. <laughs> uh, a good book. Oh, sorry. Um, breakfast. Eggs. Greatest power, uh, bodybuilder of all time. Arnold. Greatest powerlifter of all time. Ed Cohen. Favorite supplement. Branch chain aminos. Uh, greatest athlete of all time. Hmm. Baby Bear Francis. Uh, least favourite supplement? Protein powder. Most respected colleague or peer? Stuart McGill. Movie you love? Escape from LA. Uh, superhero? Thor, comic book Thor. Most underrated and underutilised exercise? Dumbbell pullover. Most common injury that you see? Low back pain. Modern bodybuilding? Evolving. Most impressive athlete, which is kind of favourite athlete. Bev Francis is what you said to that Maybe one. Herschel Walker. Who was Herschel Walker? Uh, he played, he was a great college football player and went to the, I think it was the XFL before, it was sort of like a breakaway from the NFL. But if you ever get a chance, look up Herschel Walker's highlights. You'll see a very interesting athlete there who will blow your mind. Uh, while judging a bikini division, Andrew Locke is thinking. Thank you, Tony Doherty. <laughs> <laughs> Go to food or comfort food? Uh, steak. When I am deadlifting, I like to listen to? Myself. The, the, so no, no playlists, no tracks that you listen to, just silence when deadlifting? Oh, there's no silence in my head, man. There's always something going on. Right. Uh, <laughs> the rehabilitation industry is? In trouble. Most visited website in Andrew's browser? What is a website? <laughs> what is a website? <laughs> I'm a Neanderthal, man. Uh, Wolfpack. Hungry. Uh, let's give Andrew a round of applause. <laughs> Alrighty. So, uh, as a fellow physical culturist, I always appreciate our chats and insights into your training and your training minds uh, and methods and systems that you've been using um, in the past and that you've been moving for the ages. In your opinion, is there a bodybuilder or powerlifter or even athlete weightlifter that you hold up as and say, yeah, that that person was onto something? They knew how to train. I'd probably look at Tom Platts. Tom Platts, probably because of the mental side of training. Um, I, I could see I've actually had the opportunity to spend a couple of days with Tom, as you know, and I just thought his physical result was a result of his mental side of his training. You know, just he took himself to places I don't think many people ever get to. So for Tom, you ever look at any of the inter interviews that you would see on YouTube or anywhere, you can just see he is 
to me a bit like Ed Cohen. There's a person under there who is still 18 years old and still mad and still passionate and still unrelenting. That's one of the things that Tony Doty used to say is, you know, relentless momentum. That's what I see in those people. And that's the most defining characteristic of this success is relentless momentum. So do you think uh, a lot of the time with athletes, uh, the, the mindset side and just simply their passion, it's, it's, that's the uh, indicative factor of how far they go, not actually how they train or what they eat and what they lift? Yeah, it's- totally. Yeah. I think it's a, it's a combination of perfect storm situation where you have somebody who's able to connect an incredible force of will with a physiological result that other people probably couldn't achieve as well but they could only force it by that force of will. Didn't come easy. So if we talk about training systems, um, you know, if we hold up, let's say, for example, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger and compare that to, say, for example, a Doreen Yates, uh, <laughs> they've had you know, training philosophies that are quite um, different in the way they, they see the world and see the training. Uh, I mean, is, is, are you influenced by one over the other? Are you, are you in one camp? And I know it's kind of a loaded question, but because there are people who, who uh, just kind of label themselves or <laughs> only in this camp. How, how do you learn from both of those and say, take the best bits? I'd almost say what Tom used to say is what the training you hate the most will probably do you the best good. The thing you hate the most, the higher reps, the lower reps, whatever it is, they're probably the things that's going to work for you the most. And I think in the, um, the volume approach that Arnold used, I never produced Arnold. Um, Dorian's approach produced Dorian. There's a lot to it in, I think, that when you look at how, say, some of Branch Warren trains too, and some might look at, think his form's a bit loose, but if you look at it, he connects to the tension so magnificently. And then you might watch someone like Phil Heath, beautiful form, or Kai Green. There's something about the way these athletes connect to what is almost like that tension under time, over time, you know, th- there it is is that ability to create tension at the right time to move the weight that connects with the stimulus to produce a result. So there's a lot of um, individuality when it comes to those sorts of things. And uh, I think it's almost inevitable when someone like that picks up a weight that they do it the way that they're going to get a result from. But they're different to most of us. I think that's the big thing. Sometimes looking at those people is hard to expect to get the same result. Dorian's approach was, yeah, train damn hard and try and recover. I think that's a sensible thing within it. Arnold's approach was a lot of stimulation, a lot of volume. That works for the right person as well. It's you've got to really be able to find a thing that works a bit for you. And it might not be what your hero does. So rather than, you know, heavy weights are the only things that build muscle or, you know, volume is well, the only that thing that work. builds muscle, it's... Yeah, you know, I can lift a heavy weight, but did I use the muscles that I wanted to actually apply the force to, the stimulus to, to get it from A to B? And did another muscle group pick it up better? Am I, am my triceps taking the work rather than my chest while I'm benching? It all depends on the individual quite a lot. You know, the arm lengths, the bone lengths, the muscle masses, the densities, the spindles, everything's different between individuals to some extent. So for the bodybuilders watching uh, at home, uh, what advice would you give someone who's wanting to put on, you know, lots of mass? Um, prepare to probably do a fair bit of volume training initially. Find out the exercises that work best for your body. It might not be the incline curl, it might be a standing dumbbell curl, it might be a preacher curl. For example, you've got to find the thing that you connect best with to find the area that you get the result with. It may be what your hero does, it may not be what your hero does. Steve Reeves had great arms, Steve Reeves used to like dumbbell incline curls. Arnold tried them, said he didn't really get a lot out of them. 
until he learned how to do them later in his career. Arnold worked with a thing, uh, Zottman curl. Very interesting curl. That was early in his career. You know, there's so many different things that, and variations that people find that work for them. So it is a, it's a, you can't be lazy for the normal person. The abnormal person, they're gonna get results anyway. They almost can't help but get results. We had two guys in one of the gyms I used to train at and one of the guys idolised the other fellow who was just had a really great looking physique. And he was a fairly big guy and he had an Islander Maori background and the other guy was very Celtic Scotch background. And um, the Scottish guy emulated everything from the way this guy walked, the way he talked, the way he ate. Oh, the Maori guy got beautifully big. He could run a marathon and grow. And poor the other guy, he just turned out looking like the Michelin man. It was just blubber everywhere. Two different physiologies, two different responses to the exercises. So it's very individual. That's where great coaching comes in. You know, good coaches know that everyone's not the same. There's no recipe. You've got to pull a person apart and really find out what that individual needs to grow, what their recovery processes are like. It's all different. And I think that's actually absolutely key because uh, what you alluded to earlier in the conversation was about universities. It's like universities teach you the, the dogma or teach you the textbook, but they don't actually teach you how to think. And that's what I, you know, I certainly see with a lot mm. of personal trainers and strength coaches is they, they want to be labelled and placed into a camp and have the rules dogmatically indoctrinated into them so they can put all of their clients into the camp and that almost they, they alleviate themselves of this uh, conundrum of having to think about things or think through a problem. It's rather than, oh, we're going to do this because that's the way we do it rather than that's what's actually appropriate for you. Yeah, if you want to be an unsuccessful personal trainer, that's a great approach to take. My way or the highway. Mm. You know, certainly one of the, the better personal trainers, as far as understanding and knowing his work goes, I know there's one who's really great, but he happens to be the worst people person I've ever met. And 20 years later, he still struggles in business. Now, intellectually, he can apply excellence to his clients, but his approach to them is, you're gonna do it my way, we're not talking about it, you submit to my will basically the whole time. <laughs> well, it doesn't work, don't get a lot of people that will stick with him. Yeah. And so yeah. that's sometimes where you find the personal trainers who are actually really crap, but they relate well to their um, client and the clients go into them year after year with getting no results because they have a good personal relationship with them. No, it suits some people. Uh, switching gears into scoliosis. I know a lot of the time when clients come in and you know, they, they might come in talking about labels, you know, I have scoliosis, and it's almost they say this, I am scoliosis, yeah. rather than I have scoliosis. <laughs> so before we move into the question about scoliosis, can you give a quick definition on what it is? Well, when someone comes into me and says, I've got a scoliosis, I usually say, really, so what do you feed it? <laughs> <laughs> and the whole point there being is, I'm gonna throw them off what they're possessing. And we're gonna start to talk about the fact that, you know, structural, um, abnormalities don't define an individual. So scoliosis is a curvature of the spine in a certain plane across the frontal plane here. And so when we look at that, we see a person who has a curvature of the spine. It does not define anything about the individual. The world's most successful, no, one of the world's most successful powerlifters of all time called Lamar Gand has a spectacular scoliosis. It looks like an anaconda, goes like that. Happened to be the first person I think to lift up six times body weight. So it was an advantage perhaps to him. So don't look at a structural problem as saying it's got to be a disadvantage, it may actually give you an advantage. It changed the height of his torso. He had a shorter torso. It worked for him. 
So if you've got something, that's why I say when somebody comes in and says to me, I've got a disc bulge. Okay, but I didn't ask you what you've got, I asked you what your problem is. That's how we define it. You work with the person's problems. So yeah, if someone says, I've got flat feet, fine. Well, the research doesn't indicate that's got to be a problem. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. We'll find out when we have our interview with you and we'll find out what, the way you move. Is it structural? Is it functional? Lots of things. So don't ever possess a diagnosis. Don't let a diagnosis possess you. Bad language on these problems influences badly about how people perceive their ability to perform. So yeah, some of our most, pretty much, if you look at so many great athletes, you'll see they're all unsymmetrical. You know, great tennis players, they have one arm longer than the other. You know, Usain Bolt's got one leg longer than the other. Do you want to change that? Probably not a good idea. So don't be defined by structure. So it's almost the, the mechanical at a or perceived disadvantage by this world that's trying to create a perfect symmetrical human. Um, well, one, we're, we're under a false illusion. We're searching totally. for something that just isn't really there because there is no really perfect symmetrical human. There's well, only models. I've got a classic one for this one. Everyone, if they want to do this right now, write your name down on your book just right now. Just write your name. And just after you've written your name, now write it with the other hand. <laughs> All right, go for it. Now, is there anything wrong with that other hand? No. Just neurologically, you're efficient with one side, not the other, in that task. Is that detrimental to your life? Probably not. We have different tasks devoted to different parts of our brains. We're not symmetrical creatures. We focusly function with dominance in one thing and dominance in another thing. Dominance in ability, dominance in stability, different legs, different arms. Don't look for symmetry. Symmetry is a great way to become basically useless. So, so for scoliosis, those who are watching who have scoliosis, it's really, I suppose the message is, uh, don't make it a big deal. Find a health professional who understands whether it is an influence, yeah, because there are certain levels that, yes, it can be that big that it needs intervention, but for the ones who it's only usually a couple of degrees and it's something that's not going to be, it's pretty much close to normal, then it shouldn't be defining you. Once again, everything's done on an individual basis. Yeah. But yeah, you must not be possessed by the diagnosis. And weight training can certainly help those and, and move them forward. And well, with some of the biggest scoliosis have been the most successful athletes. There was a great distance swimmer that we had in Australia who held lots of world records. Spectacular spine with huge scoliosis. Yet probably one of our greatest ever record holders. So moving back into, I just want, before we go to audience questions, I did want to do another demo. Yeah, go um, of the Of the body weight squat used as an assessment tool. Yep. Uh, I think for this one, we'll bring out uh, Luke. Mr. Luke, let's give Luke a round of applause. Luke, come on oh, out. Oh, actually, yeah, no, no, Luke, Luke. Oh, oh. <laughs> right, it's good. Right. What would you like to see Luke do? Uh, body weight squat, Luke. <laughs> All right, so what do we look at? There? What do you see there, Mark? Do we see a, a bit of a challenge to get to horizontal, to get to parallel, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And the reason why I just wanted to pull this one out to show, obviously, get this on camera for those watching on YouTube and for the audience, is um, how, how you would use a simple motor pattern in terms of, of mm. outlying. So, I mean, what I see is, um, you know, he, he's struggling with the movement. He's, you know, curving forward, hamstrings look tight. Uh, you know, I don't think his, his uh, knees are coming over his toes as freely as possibly they could be. And it looks like there's a lot of tightness. It looked hard, didn't it? Yeah. All right, so we're going to give this kettlebell to Luke, are we? There you go. 
Great, there we lucky go. guy. Down. Yep, hold it up higher. That's it. And now just give us a squat. Joe again. Great. And you can put it down. So we've got a hypothesis there, isn't it? He moved better than he did without weight. So why would he move better with a load? He got tighter. His ability increased because he got tighter, he got stronger. He switched more things on. So if we looked at it and said that first squat was his structural ability, we would be wrong. His structural ability is far better the way he displayed. His body structure was holding back and failing in certain ways until it was made to tighten up. He had two choices. Putting the weight in front of him, he could face plant or he could stay up. His muscles decided to stay up, held him together. He got tighter proximally in the center. As he got tighter there, his body then allowed him to move better. So this is one of the premises that I approach is proximal stability, increasing strength, will increase your ability of the peripheral joints to move better. So, nice to see. We have lots of hypotheses we can go with there. What's weak, what's strong, what have we got to look at? Oh, we can tease him apart later and see what we can find. Let's look forward to that. Awesome, let's give it Luke Lane an applause. Take this one, Mr. Luke. Alrighty, so now what we're gonna do is we're gonna open up to your questions, audience questions. So who has a question for An audience Andrew question. Way to go. Just based around like AFL or any sport really, why do you think there's so many more injuries these days? Probably if you look back at the history of AFL and VFL and things like that, people were training less. They had other things demanding their lives. So I would say you'd probably find that the volume of work that people are doing now has increased dramatically. And it is the inability of the biological tissue to hand up, stand up to those increased volumes of stress. And that's what I would look at as saying the biggest problem we would probably find with AFL and other sports now. It's the ability to handle the volumes of work. And you know, that's a tough one for the strength and conditioning coaches to individually plan for the, for the people. Um, I know Amy has some questions. Go for it, Amy. <laughs> I train a few boxers, um, so I find with some of them uh, they have a lot of lower back issues, just yes. tightness. So, um, what that the reasoning behind that might be, and ways to help reduce that? Well, the, the thing about any system there is, if a person has lower back pain, it will probably indicate that the lower back is either compensating for somewhere else because it's trying to make up for a weakness somewhere else or it might be a biomechanical inefficiency into rotation. Well, I basically pull things apart into three directions. I look at how a person moves forwards and backwards, side to side, and then into rotation. Now, if you're looking at boxing, you may be looking at, is a person getting lower back problems because he into the flexion position quite a lot? Are they training so much ab work that they're doing inappropriate sit-ups? So they're flexing the hell out of each other before they get into the ring. Maybe not. Maybe there is an inefficiency in their glutes holding together and allowing them to rotate their hips really well. And as a result, the lower back's taking out their rotational work. And the lower back doesn't like to do a lot of rotation. It's not made to rotate very well. It's your thoracic spine. Maybe there is a thoracic spine stiffness that's been displayed at the lumbar spine. So what you start to do is you start to pull apart the question. You're subjectively going to sit there with that person and say, when do you feel this problem? Within the session, after the session, which part of training are you getting it with? What do you find relieves it? When do you feel good? All those things. And they'll tend to start to give you the direction you want to go. 
We'll even have a look at some of that with someone today, perhaps. Hi. <laughs> um, just a question on um, uh, AFL women's uh, football coming up. Um, I'm thinking of playing, but I'm a little bit scared about just the injuries that are present in it at the moment, which was mostly like the knees, um, etc. Would you have any um, advice? Well, the usual advice, I mean, there's a blanket moment that we say everything's taken on a case-by-case -case basis. But I've yet to see somebody who's strong enough in abs and glutes that I would say you don't need to do a whole lot more. So if you look at foot control, knee control, a lot of that comes off the hip and glutes. If you look at back issues, a lot of it relates to weak abs. So especially I would say the domination is looking at that sport, is it a bilateral sport, is it a unilateral sport? A lot of unilateral work. Is squatting going to do a whole lot of good for your preparedness as an AFL player? Probably not. Step-ups, lunges, single leg movements. Well, that's where I would start to look at saying, ah, but we've got to do this because this is what this person does. They run, they do unilateral movements. So I start to think as far as core goes, unilateral work as well. So there you go, start to think, when you look at a sport and you look at what you got to do for it, determine, is it bilateral, is it unilateral, what do they do with different parts of the bodies? We don't just deadlift and squat and bench press because that's what we do. You got to say, how does this person perform that sport? What do they do in tennis? What do they do in golf? What are they doing in boxing? What are they doing in powerlifting? Well, your program's got to be different for every individual person. So AFL, a lot of running, a lot of unilateral work, look at lumbar pelvic stability. I would not be spending a lot of time squatting. Just on that, would you use a squat as an indicator of how someone is strong and how their progress is going uh, accordingly to that sport? No, not for them, not for an AFL. Money um, because I don't see it as transferring to demonstrate that's going to make them a better runner, for example. You could use it as a tool, but I really think realistically, what does that sport require? probably try and find a better objective. But it can be used as an objective. I just think, I start to think more in the pattern of the person. So it's easy enough to use a squat. I still think it's a great movement. And we know that you can create good athletes away from it. And lots of great running athletes have used squats. I just start to think of how much time you got in your day. Where are you gonna spend your best time as far as what you got for training? And what we might work from you from there. So if I was a, an AFL player, I'd run a lot. That's what I practice. Do you think that's what they're doing? They just just um, repeat for the audio. Did you, the question is, do you think that's what they're doing? Yeah. And perhaps they're doing it badly. Yeah. So you're repetitively performing that movement badly. So eventually the, the tissue has a problem. So it's time to pull those players apart and to look at where their strengths and weaknesses are. So if you make a person who's weak around the hips run a lot, you'll probably get a knee or a foot problem out of it. Right, so more unilateral step-ups, lunges, yeah. split squats, this kind of thing. Yeah, jumps, vertical leaps, yeah. all the things that you're going to put together there. Banded squats might be a great one to play with, mm. just to make that work. There's a really great reason to put a squat in, because there's a good place to put a band. Hang on, just uh, pass the audio. Would that be the same for someone with plantar fasciitis? Yeah, don't look at the foot. Go everywhere else but the foot until you end up back at the foot. Look at the knee, look at the hip, look at the core, look at all those things, and then end up at the foot. So if you find something else somewhere else, that may be the reason the person's got that. 
Yeah, so remember the last thing you do when someone says, I got plantar fasciitis. Push the foot, look at the foot. Don't do that first. Look everywhere else first. So you want to know what you don't know, not what you do know. Knowing what you know is not going to help you. You really got to find out what gaps. And if there are no gaps, great, then you're confident you've missed nothing. Uh, it sounds like uh, the theme of uh, what you've been saying so far is it's everything really is case by case. It's down to the individual. It's so 100%. Each case is so unique. Uh, what would you say the best, If let's say for example, whether it's for me personally or a client, what would be the best start to say if I wanted to get assessed as to what would be the best technique? Should I even be doing a squat? Should, should I first come to someone like you? And There's not many people like me. It's a good challenge. Um, it, is, it comes with good trainers who have the education. I think um, a, a good trainer who's been educated into understanding the squat, deadlift patterns, how humans move, um, movement screening, all those things can give you an understanding of what structural advantages and disadvantages you might have. But yes, a true screening process does help. Okay, because whether it's, whether it's for example, if, if someone just wants general fitness and all that, I'd say, okay, yeah, maybe just join a gym and be fine. But if you wanted to train at an elite level and really improve, uh, it sounds like what you're saying is get screened. Well, even, even the person who goes to just the general gym, really, they need, they need to have some assessment of their physical limitations or abilities. No, what's a, you know, do, you, do you buy a set of golf clubs and go out to the course and just start hitting away and think you're going to be okay? Or do you get a few lessons from someone who's got an education, who's good, who knows what they're doing? So that's why coaching to me is the imperative. If you're going to take something up, you get coaching to get your basics right. So if you want to play tennis, do you buy a tennis racket and just start hitting the ball across the net? No, you've got to know how to hold the racket. You've got to see someone who actually knows what they're doing. So this is what good coaching is about. Good coaching is about making sure that you, know, you take a, a novice, you teach them the basics, you, you make sure they understand the basics usually, and then you can start to program them and away you go. But it's always defined by the goal of the individual. If a person just wants to um, play with their kids when they're 70 years old still, well, I wouldn't be giving him a max single deadlift to test him out every few months. It's cost to benefit ratio. It's not part of his life goal plans. So you make him move well, safely, get all the joints moving through the range of motion, you've satisfied that person's reason for training. You've got someone else who wants to be a champion at something, all right, it's a different goal altogether. Coaching's got to be a fluid process. You've got to adjust for every single client that you meet. They're all, everyone's different. And just on that... Right? <laughs> <laughs> Which if, could be anything. I just thought you could give that one. Just on that, um, we've actually put together as part of Wolfpack and people can download it publicly who are watching this uh, on the uh, personal trainer mentoring website, which is the Wolfpack website. There's the first five classes of Wolfpack, which is uh, basically a structural and assessment uh, mini e-course that takes you through um, the things that probably the highlights that you've taught me, yeah. which is the overhead squat, the clat test, um, the forward flexion test, lumbar extension, and the body weight squat. And some of them are half hour videos where basically I dissect with, I've got a model in and you know, um, we dissect what to look for and then what to do as well, which can be a great starting point. So definitely Se check that one out. Point, uh, assessment. 
the five, there's, there's five videos and there's five tests. So using the five tests, um, but then yeah, it's based off of the great um, Andrew's work and stuff that he's taught me as well. Because I remember having a conversation mm. with you as a, as a personal trainer and coach, what are the key assessments that we should, we should learn? And from speaking to you, they were, they were the five kind of standout assessments that we've implemented not only here at Enterprise, but that's also what we teach in Wolfpack. So you can re-watch those anytime you like. And for those watching it on YouTube, uh, you can head over to that website, Melbourne Personal, or not Melbourne Personal Trainers, rather, personaltrainermentoring.com and just leave your details and you'll get signed up for that e-course and um, yeah, be able to watch those five videos. So that's a really great starting point. But then I suppose the next thing would either, obviously you guys are already here at Wolfpack or you know seeking out Andrew Locke and going to one of his courses and, and learning from him directly. So yep, yeah. always good. Tyrone. Um, what would your advice be for, say, us as trainers, when you get a client, they see a physio, osteo, whatever, and they diagnose them with something and they say, okay, just rest. Um, and they come back and go, okay, I can't train anymore because the physio, osteo said, I can't train because I've got this, this, and this. Yeah, I would I then approach them as saying, well, which I've already said is, make the client understand that rest changes nothing, that if you've got a problem and you're not doing anything about it, you'll only come back and do it again. So you'll show them that that piece of advice should be put within a construct which involves change. So if a person's doing a high volume of work and the physio chiro somebody says, you need to rest, and they also need to rest, but to change within that to practice something. So they have to be doing something realistically to move, to make a change. And then I'd also say, look, you know, it depends upon your relationship with that health professional, but it might be useful to get um, a second opinion from somebody who's experienced in what your, out, your goals are, and that may be someone that um, you can recommend. So then that they can get a second opinion about somebody who would prefer to get them back. Look, if I have a person who comes with a broken arm, good, they've got one, la one arm and two legs to go, back to the gym you go. You're still trained. You know, it doesn't mean you rest, it just means you rest that arm. But hell, don't rest that, the other arm because neurologically that's going to help the other arm. So you never sort of have really almost any situation that I can find that you should completely stop. That's a founded premise that if you break your left arm and you keep training your right arm, it actually helps facilitation of recovery of the left arm that you Correct, break. Correct, yeah. And there's a lot of things you can do if you want to play with that. You can play with mirror work and other stuff. It all works. So there's always ways to assist. What's mirror work? Well, for example, when you look into a mirror, your brain sees Mark looking in the mirror, but in the mirror it sees the reverse. So you might have your left arm's got a problem, but in the mirror, your right arm is your left arm. And you can actually work with the movement pattern in the mirror to change what's happening on your real left arm. Because your brain sees that as a visualisation. So I've used that with clients had a guy once who had 10 years, he hadn't moved his foot because he was convinced that he had a surgery, that his foot couldn't move anymore. And fortunately, because I had got a little piece of equipment, I saw there was an electrical current, so I knew it was still working there. So I sat him in front of the mirror, made him tap his opposite foot. I said, look, see which foot's moving? I said, now turn your chair around 180 degrees, and do it with the other foot. Came back in two weeks, he could move both feet. He had accessed the program. It's, it's a useful tool if you know what you're looking for. Changing people's shoulder movements. Sometimes I'll do that if I can see that I can, I've got a tool there at the time for the right person. So you can change neck ranges of motion sometimes. 
sometimes the body limits itself because it's got a feedback and expectation, but you can actually mess with that quite well. So with phantom limb pain, that's one of the tools that's used. If a person has their arm removed, the nerves that control the arm are still in the brain. They're looking for it, so they construct a phantom limb. They construct what they think should be there, because they're still there. Now, what you do is then you can use a mirror to see that that arm is actually there, the brain sees it, and you can use methods to decrease pain. So there's ways of getting to anything. There's tools we can always use. It's a fantastic little area. So do you think we've, we've tapped out the, I mean, neurology, you know, 101? I mean, where, do you think there's, there's more to be found or do you think we're just really understanding the tools that we have? Where do you think it's going to go? We're understanding next? a lot with the tools we have and there's more to be done. Yeah, everything's still, we're still evolving our approach to lots of parts of science, but the fundamentals of the science are still there. Progressions in rehabilitation over the next five, ten years, are there any predictions there? No, it's regressing a little bit, um, in Australia anyway. So Australia, the best way we can start to do is to look overseas to see often what the most current research is, or what the best evidences and teachers are doing, because currently, as I said, the professionals and health professions here are getting a little bit restricted by the current academic um, pushes, which I don't think are very good, and they've been bad for about 30 years. They have, you know, basically Australia has did a disservice to the world with the transverse abdominus multifidus theory. It was wrong, and I've written on that before. And yet that influenced the way we approach things and a bit overseas, but they got rid of it pretty fast. But you know, the biomechanics of human movement are being progressively done well over in North America and Canada and Europe, in certain parts of Europe anyway. So we'll take two more questions and then we'll wrap up. Move the uh, mic over to Terry. You were saying about um, a person who's lost a limb with a neuropathways and so forth. Yeah. What about in a case where someone's a paraplegic and they've actually got pain where they actually have no feeling in their legs but they've got pain? Yeah. So how, how would you treat that sort of thing? I would actually send that person to a behavioural specialist, in other words a psychologist, for a start because there may be other issues there which may have to be investigated, which are influencing why that person feels pain. It may have a lot to do with, obviously, the trauma of what they're experiencing too. So maybe about how they're, they're handling that experience. It may be a lot to do with a lot of parts of their life. I would almost look to having that certainly cleared and discussed with a behavioural professional before I'd actually look to anyone else. Lucky last. Pass it down to Carl. All the way from Sydney. <coughs> Knowing that you know that uh, the average person's back 80% is going to be better in the first four weeks, how do you get the compliance of the client to stay with you for 8 to 12 weeks to hit that 100%? Well, you see, I don't see acute people very often anymore. It'll take you a month to get in to see me anyway. So it's very rare that someone's going to ring up, I've hurt my back, I need to, well, I get it all the time, I need to see you, and I just go, yeah, well, my next appointment's about five, six weeks away. Um, so... I'm not going to see the acute very often now. I tend to see the ones who, are, hey, you know, I've hurt, been hurt for the last two years. I can wait to see you for six, in six weeks' time. Um, I have a little compliance thing that if you don't do your exercises, I charge you twice the next time you come in. It's double the amount. It might give you a motivation to actually do what you're being told. I don't have a really great problem with that because um, one of my things with people is we discuss the amount of work that needs to be done. So it's unnegotiable. This is what you need to do. You do this much every day. You're doing it twice a day. You're seeing me anyway because you've failed with a lot of other people, that's why you're coming in, and you're serious. 
So I tend to get a really great client population because I get people who are very serious about trying to get a solution. Excellent. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Wolf's Den. Uh, stay tuned for more great episodes like this. And if you want more information about Andrew Locke, where can they find you? Uh, on Facebook's usually the best way, Functional Strength Rehabilitation. Um, I do a lot of work with the Australian Strength Coach, Sebastian Oreb. We run a series of workshops on the power lifts and the different injuries. Uh, we do that throughout Australia and even internationally now. Uh, so Sebastian's the strength coach for Thor, the um, world's strongest man. And we put together a lot of his experience with the particular deadlift, squat and bench. And I do the rehab side of things. Fantastic. Well, thanks for joining us for Wolfpack. Folks, make sure you stay tuned. Subscribe to us on YouTube where all the episodes and great videos from Enterprise and Wolfpack will be found. So just subscribe below. And if you want more information on Wolfpack or all things uh, personal training mentoring, do check out personaltrainermentoring.com. Thanks for watching. How about a hand for our guests today? Oh, 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 oh,